The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Stocks rocked as the coronavirus spreads, the Dow having its worst week since the depths of the financial crisis, the selling widespread. All three major averages now in a correction. So what should you be doing with your money following a day like today? Our traders are standing by to break it all down for you. A special edition of Fast Money starts right now. And welcome, everybody, to a very special Fast Money. As always, live from the NASDAQ market site, it was another history-making day and what has been a history-making week. And joining us for the entire hour, commercial-free, are Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grasso. We're also pleased to be joined by Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. All right, we'll get to them in just a moment. But let us recap how this incredible day played out. The Dow just had its biggest point drop in history, falling 1,190 points. That was a 4.4% drop. The Dow index has now lost 3,200 points this week alone. It is now down nearly 10% this year. The S&P, meantime, falling 4.4% as well, handing in its worst day since August of 2011. And this is the fastest correction, a 10% drop from the highs in the entire history of the stock market. Let's focus on the big names that you know, the ones that control the market, the fangs. They tumbled as well, and they took the market with them. You had Apple down 6.5%, Google 55 and look at Microsoft, a 7% drop. Wow. So as stocks sold off buyers, they flooded into bonds. The 10-year yield at one point traded at 1.24%, ended at 1.26. That, by far, the lowest ever at any time in American history for that 10 years. Now, bond traders say that not only are they expecting a rate cut by the Fed on March 18th, but there is chatter, the possibility of maybe an intra-meeting cut between now and then. All told, the fear on the street is very real. So, Tim Seymour, our audience tonight is likely asking two very simple questions. What do I do now and what comes next? Thanks, Brian. So if if you think about, first of all, when when markets really start to panic, policymakers start to act. And and I think that the policy response, which we've seen so many times, is certainly part of the evolution of where we go from here. The problem is uh, we've had the conversation for 18 months uh, about what policymakers can really do for the economy. Uh, We know what they can do short term for markets. In terms of the news flow, uh, obviously today we started to get both, uh, you know, bottom-up news flow in terms of, you know, EPS forecast, things cut to the bone, uh, things that are follow-through from what we've seen from companies over the last, say, two weeks, especially, and it's going into crescendo. Um, you, you have a case here where uh, I think the news flow, look, on, on the virus, let's be clear, um, the news flow on the virus, uh, that trend significantly lower. And when you, you know, without getting too deep into the dynamics of the virus itself, you actually have an incubation period with the virus where my guess is uh, we still have a lag time where that news flow should probably get worse. But, but maybe more importantly, in terms of the communication from officials, and this is officials around the world, um, that type of response tends to come in a delayed response. So um, for equity players, by any definition, we are oversold. And Brian you know, outlined a lot of that on the way down. If you think about where we were uh, on December 24th of 2018 for that Christmas Eve low, and you looked at the relative 
of strength indicators for the S&P, we were at about a 12, nine-day RSI, relative strength, a measure of momentum. Uh, we're there now. Uh, and we're certainly, uh, as we pointed out, put a punctuation in terms of what markets can do. The problem right now for me, Dan, and this is that markets haven't even taken out kind of where we were before uh, the highs of the pre, you know, coronavirus dynamics where we were concerned about other things. Yeah, so you know, it's funny. A lot of people have been talking about these mega cap stocks. We've never had the sort of concentration that we've had in in the S&P 500 by so few names, and we know what they are. It's Microsoft, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Amazon. And and just about a week and a half ago, they met up nearly $5 trillion of the S&P 500, and that was uh, 17, 18% or something. So if you thought that they kind of overshot on the upside over the last few months, that the sentiment just got overly, overly complacent relative to those, then you say to yourself, what is the level on the downside where it's gotten too oversold? And and none of us know exactly what that is. And I think it's also really important to remember that this virus, it's unquantifiable what it means to the supply chains, what it means to demand, what it means to these companies. I know there's a lot of arguments like, well, Microsoft's not really in China or this and that, whatever. That really doesn't matter. When you think about the two companies that really rattled the U.S. stock market this week, it was Apple and it was Microsoft by kind of pulling that Q1 guidance. So to me, when you think about what were the expectations for S&P, S&P earnings coming into 2020, a year after the, the, the S&P rallied 30% with no earnings growth, it was high single digits, and people felt pretty comfortable about that. Now you can throw that out the window, so the question is, do you going to have 2019 and 2020 with multiple yeah. expansion if the market's going to go back up with no meaningful earnings growth? Hold on, bring up, Dan's bringing up a very important point, and, and I think that we've talked about it for months yeah. on this show, and most people said, that's not the way it goes. But, Steve, i got to ask you, coronavirus is the villain. We right. know that. This is the fastest 10% drop in the history of the market. I'm talking to people all day long today who are saying that they're selling ETFs. The QQQ had triplets, right. daily average, to raise collateral, to raise cash. And the ETF market makers are not there to put the bids in. How much does that crowding that Dan talked about accelerate what would be selling in? It's all about positioning. It's all about leverage. But my problem is when you said what comes next. Tomorrow's Friday, ahead of the weekend news. What's the news flow that we're going to see? Is it going to be better or worse than it was today? It's going to be worse. So how do you bottom on a Friday? You don't. For me, it's 2855. It's 100 handles lower in the S&P. That's where I find support. Then I think you can substantively bounce from there. But that's a next week story for me. Yeah, I say for us, you know, something important happened today. Um, we breached the 10% drawdown. 10%, you know, while it feels terrible, that's kind of a garden variety type pullback. And we actually put a note out this morning saying if we didn't hold at 3050, we thought a growth scare was in play. So what's a growth scare? That's a 14 to 20% type drawdown. And we've had plenty of those since the financial crisis. We had it in 2015, 2016, fourth quarter of 2018. We had it back in 2010, 2011. Um, so that scenario for me is now in play. What what I'm watching next is 2,900. You know, I, I know it's impossible to quantify what, what's going on right now. We've taken a stab at it, and our best guess at the moment tells us we can start to make a valuation argument again after we get down below 2,900. You, she, bring, she brings up that level 3050. Yeah. That's the 200-day moving average, yeah. 3045. So people are looking at, so when you say what's going on, people are setting their algorithms because they have no clue where this market's going. So they set them for moving averages. So you have to know the technicals for you to be And they're uh, going to sell it down to those yeah. levels. T- Tim, I texted you today, and I said, basically, what the What's heck? What's going is- on, Tim? <laughs> yeah, what's going no. on, Tim? And you said there was a technical attempt... 
to recover today. Remember, we were only down 200. Right. And I only say I say only down 200 tongue in cheek before it failed. Why did we fail? Well, it, again, uh, to me, I think there's certainly some algo dynamics, which uh, you know, continues to press on things. You know, t- 30, 45, something in there, 200 day. It, it seemed it was an inevitability, um, not just this morning. It was an inevitability last night. We were kind of in no person's land. But, you know, you have a case here. Uh, I want to look at where was the market really before the Fed jumped in and supplied $400 billion of balance sheet. And so just at least as a context, and this is kind of what Lori's doing, too. Get back to uh, 2855, which is what Steve said, um, which is the level on October 3 of 2019, which was that low that we hit uh, before we essentially got the Fed to respond in the tune of QE4, which they're not saying it was. But um, I think you have to drop in, you know, where was the market sentiment at that time? The market was, uh, that was the sentiment without a world of coronavirus. That was a world where we were certainly digesting the fact that the world was struggling with the trade war dynamic, but it was struggling with what we were seeing in terms of Asian PMIs, European PMIs and actually the leading indicators in the United States. That is a world we at least have to get back to and address, in my view. Uh, And that's not a terrible place. That's just a place that I think takes out a lot of that Fed, even though we're going to get more Fed. But that really looks you in the eye of where we're staring at lower growth and lower earnings. Yeah, it's not a great place to be, though. When you think about it, I've heard a lot of commentary about a sort of V-reversal that's going to happen, you know, in China once this thing moves on, given the monetary and the fiscal stimulus that people expect. But, you know, markets can turn on a dime. Economies generally don't. And when you think about it, I think there's another theme that I keep hearing about is this deglobalization. It was kind of one of the themes of the trade war that we've been in for the last year and a half. And let me just tell you this. If you see U.S. multinationals moving out of China in a meaningful way, and there's a lot of good reasons why they should, I just think that you have to remember that China's economy has been a driving force in global growth, especially over the last decade when we've seen, the, you know, when we've seen Europe and the U.S. kind of weak. You know? And so if you take all that business out of there, what's going to happen to that emerging middle class that so many of our companies have been just dying to get in for. So to me, I don't think you see the global economy turn on a dime once this thing dissipates. And I'm not trying to tell a too dire of a story, but, you know, risk asset valuations have been inflated, no doubt about it. And we saw it last Q4 or last half of last year after the Fed got in there. But I I agree with you. I don't don't think you see economies turn on a dime, but the S&P and markets are always forward-looking mechanisms, and they always price out six to eight months, sometimes a year ahead. So you could see the market turn way before you see the economy turn, and even when we're still in the, in the death grasp of whatever we see going on in China. But do you think the risk of a couple percent slowdown this year, Steve, in global economies, let's call it China, let's say they're flat for the quarter, no growth, zero percent. Our GDP is hit by a half a percent. Europe hit by one percent. Does that justify China? When I first started in this business, when you when you look at this all around the table, we had double digit growth in China. Then we went down to around six to eight percent growth yeah. in China. And now you don't know where we are. No one believed the numbers when they were double digit. digit. No one believed them when they were mid single. We don't know where their growth is. How about this? Does one case, one case in Brazil, justify? a 12% drop or whatever in their markets in a matter of days. No, but I mean I, No, but I, no one knows where this where the other shoe is going to drop. No one knows where there's going to be a vaccine. I think you need a vaccine. When people are taking a stab at this when it came to tariffs and trade trade wars, you could sort of guesstimate. 
you have no way to guesstimate right now. You need a vaccine. That's it. Well, Brazil is also, you know, very much affected by what happens to China. When you think about also the world of commodities, the world of resources, uh, who's the ultimate buyer of a lot of what Brazil produces? And, and if you think about emerging markets, and we'll have plenty of chance during this hour to kind of get into the implications. So far, you've actually had relative relative stability in terms of the currencies in EM, uh, although if you look at where they were year to date against a dollar that we spent a lot of time talking about as well, you know, you'd seen current account deficit countries like South Africa and, and Brazil and, and some of these, you know, off 8 to 10 percent. But, but I, I think back to where I, the market has to at least um, find some place where we weigh uh, what's inevitably a policy response versus a market that was challenging uh, the Fed to, to really uh, stay out of the market. Um, and so if you look at the long end of the curve over the last couple of days, you can see, I know it seems dramatic, and I know we've talked about the yield compression that's gone on in the United States, but uh, on a relative basis, considering the equity moves over the last couple of days, the long end of the curve has actually not done a whole lot. We've been stuck around 125 to 135 for two days in the middle of an equity uh, you-know-what storm. So I, I think um, just think about the, the context of global yields, um, what that's telling you about the world and what's telling you about what central banks mm-hmm. can and cannot do. Right. I don't, and I don't want to get too wonky, Dan, and we're going to talk more about the Fed and the yeah. tentacles in just a minute. But how much of this violent drop do you believe is simply people raising cash, raising collateral to meet certain requirements on the street? It's a little technical. It's a little. Everybody I talk to says you got to raise cash. you got to raise collateral. So you sell what you can. And what are people selling? Well, the big ETFs, they're selling the big name stocks. Yeah, I mean, Lori just the said cash. it. When you look at the QQQ, which was the NASDAQ 100, those top four names, we know what they are. We're like 50%. They're half the weight in the other 95 or whatever. We're, you know, I'm, listen, you know, yes, you sell what you can. Um, correlations go high. You, there's a lot of sectors you could look at. Did you see consumer staples today? They got nailed. Did you see utilities? They got nailed over the last week. Those are all these supposed safe haven sort of things. The only thing that really held up all week, the safe haven trade, was the U.S. Treasuries. I mean, you, you know, that was it. You just sell every rally in yields, and that's what's worked. And then, obviously, the dollar was working for a while. That's come in in a lot of ways. You guys think about it. Remember back in uh, ZERP or, you know, back in the day? What were they doing? They were trying to weaken the dollar. So I think that the whole notion of lowering rates and the dollar going up, that was a real double whammy for U.S. multinationals. The fact that it's eased off a little bit is probably not a horrible thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think after 10 years of NERP and ZERP and QE and all this sort of stuff, the old playbooks are out the window and you have to start thinking about, you know, and we've been talking about this for years, what does the Fed have to do? What do central banks globally, what do they have in their, um, you know, in the bag to, to just, kind of just, face just stuff? Just think Who about knows? where we I, came from, though, to back to Tim's point. We've had an incredible run in the marketplace. So when we sit around the table, I always have to catch myself because last week you're thinking about taking profits. You go, oh, let me let me just wait until they run out of momentum. And then it comes down with a crashing blow today. And then you say, uh, I don't want to sell them now. And then there's people who are on the other side of it saying, I don't want to buy them yet. I don't think I got a great enough discount yet. So everyone's down there. The NYC, I was getting some data today from a market maker. Said so the average trade size is now 138 shares. That's it. These are not mom and pop sellers who are calling their brokers and selling one no. stock. That's no. not but, who's doing that. It was all of it, way. though. Tesla's Exhibit A. This was a retail Space. thing. The Robin Hood stuff. I mean, like th- there was manias going on. It was all screaming in silence right there. there. Yep. We know what right, it but looks just, like. But We've been around through here. the prism. On, on, we're going to get to the technicals. But through the prism of that December Fed debacle, we were at 2350 in the S&P. Yep. 
and then we rallied to almost 3,400. So when you have to when you have to look at retracements and technicals and everything, I else, understand. And there were people I was trolling. Mom and pops are watching the show right now. To your point, trying to figure out what to do. And as long as you're owning good companies that are going to be around in five years, you stay the course. Like who? Your Apples, your Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons. Names that you're... The, the problem that I have is that when you look for value and you look at the chemical names and you look at energy, those have done nothing but get demolished. And I don't think you could be there. And I own some. But I just don't think that that's where you're going to see the growth over the next yeah. five years. I'll give you some really quick levels like on some names like that. Microsoft uh, literally consolidated last year between 140 and 150 for like four and a half months. It broke out at 150. It went to 190. Gets back to 150. I know that sounds crazy because it was at 190 a week and a half ago. It's at 158 right now. That's where you start picking at it. JP Morgan broke out in October at 120 bucks. It went as high as 140. You get back to those support levels. Disney traded as high as 150. We know where it broke out last April at 120. It's a little bit below that. I mean, there's levels for these high quality numbers where you can start uh, high quality stocks where you can start picking at. Apple, it's out the door. I mean, that thing went up 100% last year, so you get... No reason to buy it here. No, what what I'm saying is put your finger up in the air and you start thinking about it. That is a company that's going to be around for a while. I'll tell you one thing that we've noticed, and we've talked a lot about these big media, tech, internet names that are just suddenly getting smoked after having just ferociously run up this year. Um, We noticed that the hedge fund community seemed to get spooked last Wednesday. And what happened on Wednesday was that all the brokers around the street, myself included, put out our reports on what the 13 Fs had shown, those ones that were released on Valentine's Day. And we sensed that there was a little bit of a chill that went through the hedge fund community. And what those what those lists tell you is where the most crowded positions are. And hedge funds are very, very sensitive to those kinds of crowding risks. We had seen them sort of skew their positioning defensively, even while markets were going up. All of a sudden, we whacked them over the head with these lists of, hey, these stocks are super, super crowded. Then we started to see this passive systematic selling in the market. And now we're actually seeing real money go to work. You know, we saw the exact same thing back in the second half of 2018. Frankly, it happened well before the market peaked. We saw it same last year, last July, right before we had kind of the trade war debacle. People thought that was off the table. To me, this smells like plain old-fashioned hedge fund de-risking right now. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's starting to move so quickly, even though it feels like some of that passive stuff may already be played out. We'll find more opportunities in all this carnage. There's got to be something somewhere. As Jim Cramer says, the bull market everywhere at some point. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, so we talked about it a bit, but let's dive in a little bit deeper. Technicals, they seem to be a big part of the day today. Around midday, we were down six or 700. We were down near, just under 200 at one point today. The buyers tried to fight it off well off our lows, only to fail spectacularly again. Joining us now is Todd Gordon of Ascent Wealth Partners to talk about not only what happened, but Todd, more importantly, where is, if anywhere, that support 
that may put that floor under this. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> it's a very interesting conversation. I think we just have to realize that this is a market now. We're, we're not in modern portfolio theory. This is behavioral finance. And I think there's a lot of psychology that can be sort of interpreted based on these squiggles that you're seeing in the chart. Keep in mind, we were sideways for two years. The market sentiment, sentiment two years ago by some of the largest hedge fund managers was bearish, was underinvested, and was outright short. We've just recently broken higher. So I think there's this general disdain right now for this market. And this is the first opportunity post-two-year consolidation that we've seen any kind of selling. So I, I kind of think that sentiment is carrying over. All right, back to the charts as we clear this out. Look, this drop right now at the close was about 12.3% from the high. Putting it in perspective, calming ourselves down, looking at where we've been, where we are, this is very much um, on pace to be equal to many of the declines that we've seen over those last two years. When you start getting above a 16% decline, that becomes problematic. But again, this is in the context of a major range from which we just broke out and we're recapturing some of the breakout. There's a lot of hope at the 200-day moving average uh, today. Uh, I, I was watching the bounce, and that's when we went down only 200. We gave that up. Okay, getting off of the daily, this is the weekly chart. And I find moving averages only um, <clears throat> as relevant as the market wants to respect. It's very algo-driven. Uh, um, so this is the weekly. This is the moving average calculated off the last 50 weeks and the last 200 weeks. What I like about this level is the 50-week moving average is right around that 30-30, which is on top of the 200-day. That's why you staged a little bit of a, a rally today, which ultimately failed. Looking at that 200-week, you can see it's amazing how well that is held. And unfortunately, if we don't hold this cluster, your next downside level is at about 26.20. And again, that's just the markets tracing this out and showing us where support is. So if we don't hold... That would be the next level of support. Now, I did see some, some promising signs with sort of that melt into the close here. A lot of the internals didn't confirm. This is very technical, but tick, trend, advanced decline. All these didn't confirm with new low readings as the S&Ps closed at the low. Further, let's go back to the end of 2018 and 19. Um, this is the VIX in orange. All we did was go back and retest this 35 VIX level, which the higher the volatility, the more fear there is. Yet this was on the back of a 20% decline in the S&P, where we've only seen, as I said, about a 12%. So I think the market's gotten very fearful. And again, the internals that we're following aren't really confirming just this last push down. So I am not throwing in the towel yet. I'm still hopeful. All right, Todd Gordon, still hopeful. Todd, come and join us. Grasso, what do you think of those levels? Yeah, sir, I like his levels. He's probably a, a little more optimistic than I am ultimately on where we actually bottom out in this. So I, when you look at I, I like following retracement levels. So when you look back to that 2350 level and the all-time high, you come up with the 618 retracement. Getting wonky here, it's right where we close today. Yep. I don't think we bottom today. I think we have another 100 handles lower in the S&P, and I think we have a possibility of rallying next week. But next week, well, next week, because I think you have to w let the whole news cycle filter through with all the Sunday morning shows. Uh, if there's going to be more cases and what the cases are, there's not going to be a lot of positive news flow this weekend. There we just is. Lori, we had a presidential press conference last night, very long ranging, about an hour long during our special. And, and Trump said, we're going to be fine. There's not much going on. We've got the response. And what happened today? 1,100 point drop of the Dow. No, and I think we also, we, you know, it seemed like this morning when the market was really fighting back, trying to find that bottom, trying to put it in, the news flow was a little bit more favorable. I know that my email was blowing up in the afternoon when things were getting weaker. Um, 
um, just with, you know, various reports of things in California and the West Coast. And it just seemed like the news flow wasn't cooperating. And I think at the end of the day, there's a question of faith, um, faith in the government's ability to fight this thing. And that's not a political statement. I think that would be true of any anybody that's in office right now. Um, but just, you know, that that lack of uncertain that lack of certainty about how this virus actually functions, I think, resurfaced in a big way in terms of people's minds today. Yeah, I wanted to ask Todd, you, yeah. you know, about the charts there. When you think about um, 2018, we had an early run up in the beginning of the, the, the year and then we kind of flushed 10 percent or so. And it took a long time. It wasn't until October until we got back to the new highs. Right. But then we flushed again 20 percent. Are we setting up for possibly a similar year when you think that there's a lot of unknowns here um, and the likelihood of new highs anytime soon? What, what do you think the chances of new highs are? Um, I, th- I think they're probable. I, I mean, I really, again, I just think this is so such a negative sentiment. Some of the largest hedge fund managers in the world were outright bearish, if not short, over the last two years. And now they just flipped. Um, so I, I just think there's a lot to catch up here on the upside, unwinding this bearish sentiment that's been driving the market. So so we were just technically range bound. Right. So so this is just a pullback. We've got a you know half back, which is very, te- very uh, very expected uh, from a move. It's so, the fastest 10% down move in the history of the yeah, American but, stock but also, market. But also they didn't let anybody in on the way out of that two-year range. We only saw a 25 and a 3.5% correction post-October 2019 break from that high. So, um, I, you know, I think it's it was easy come, easy go. And I think there will be people, once we stabilize a little bit, who missed out on this entry who are looking to get on the bid. Yeah, and, and look, it was an 18% move from October to, to right. those highs. So And tech I, was like 30%. Yeah, and I'm not going to tell you that that's the, the, the most uh, ferocious upside move we've seen in markets, but that, that was right there. Um, it really was after a year where we'd also uh, had a couple of those moves. And in fact, if you take the low off of deck 24, 2019, uh, 2018 to that high, uh, we effectively moved almost 44% on the S&P. I mean, that's, uh, you know, and again, I'm picking, you know, the high and the low, uh, but that's pretty extraordinary. I, when I think about what the market's done over those last, and Brian, you're, you're, you're emphasizing the, the, the very clear here, which is important. This reminds me of December 11th, the first eight days of August of December 2011. What happened, I'll remind you, was when the U.S. lost its AAA. Um, and again, we had this, this moment where no one really knew what it meant. It certainly didn't have immediate economic impact, and it really didn't even have a credit follow-through. But it had a case where you had enormous uncertainty around the world, and again, it was a slightly different time for sovereign bonds. It was really before Draghi had asserted himself and the ECB had begun to actually have some autonomy to do what it needed to be done. This is what this reminds me of in terms of the irrationality of the markets. And if you'll remember, um, we actually had a pretty ferocious rally as we got back up into September. There was a lot of folks that were you know, worried about year-end stuff and missing out. But ultimately, it set us up for a very dangerous October. But and he, I think that's, that's here's the Here's the question here. that I have for Todd, though. Yeah. Todd, I, know I go by a three-day rule. So, and, I, and sometimes I don't adhere to it myself, and I always, I always regret it that I don't. The three-day rule is wherever the stock bottoms or wherever the market bottoms, you wait three days and see if that bottom holds. On the third day, you're okay to dip, dip your toe in. And I'm okay missing a couple of days of upside shot. How do you know for people sitting at home yep. when you could start buying a market, when it starts finding a base, that it's a real base in your opinion? So I, I, think, I think you don't want to put the seatbelt on as the plane is just about to crash, right? You need to be prepared. You need to have your list. 
I've switched. I now work for a wealth management firm. We have a list of stocks that we want. This needs to be part of your plan. You need to be well planned out in order to have these names and start moving. You can't know when the bottom is. You absolutely can't know. Um, but I, you know, I just feel like you need to be properly allocated stocks that you like. Um, you know, I, there is no hard and fast way. Uh, I just think, you know, you look at the technology. I'm, I'm shocked how much sentiment has shifted. We had a tech-led, semi-led rally just a month ago. People were talking about the new age of quantum computing, artificial intelligence, driverless cars. And all of a sudden, we're throwing that all out because of a, a virus. I'm saying, well, let's, let's kind of back it up here a little. Let's calm ourselves well, got, here a little yeah, let's, bit. Let's back it up just a bit because we've got enough brain power and market experience on this desk to light New York City. Okay? But I, I think our audience wants simple explanations yeah. of what happened. And what do they do now? I'm getting, I'm sure we're all getting emails and texts from our family and friends. Do I sell now? Do I buy now? Should people buy more stocks now, Todd? We, okay, I have to put this delicately because, again, I've I've assumed a new position at a wealth management firm. I have investor capital right now that is on the sidelines. I am lightly buying on the way down, and I'm completely confident it's part of the plan. You need to have a plan. In a highly volatile market like this, again, this is the first opportunity we've seen on a pullback post two-year consolidation, which was hugely hated stock market. Market goes higher. This is the first opportunity. Everyone calm down here. Let's look at where technical support levels are. We don't know which one is going to hold, but you have to layer in. You have to nibble on the way down. You have to do it in solid stocks. We have portfolios of fundamentally strong stocks with good balance sheets. These should dampen the volatility. Um, you know, this is this is this is an opportunity. Well, I, I don't I don't think. All right. right. And that's sound advice. Um, but I will also tell you that my parents who were texting me have sat through two times in the last 20 years where the S&P 500 has been cut in half. And, and in the beginning of that sell off, it has both times in 2000. It came from an all time high. It came from a period of euphoria. Right. And then there was some kind of unforeseen events. Don't think for a second. By the time we got to 9-11-2001, that was like the gut punch. Right. And we went down considerably lower from that. That had nothing to do with the dot com bubble imploding that, you know. So, I mean, that's the thing that put us in recession. And then you think back to what happened here. Obviously, the Fed used the same playbook as they always have. They kind of go really easy on monetary and fiscal and all that sort of stuff. And then we get into the financial crisis. And let me tell you, I, we all lived through 2008, and nothing was going to be the one that took us down 50% until we got into the summer of 2008, and all hell broke loose, and no one had control over anything. So, I mean, to me, I just think So that, how far could we no, drop? But, well, well, listen, I, just real quickly. In 2018, in Q4, no one thought, we, we thought we were going to have a garden variety correction, 5%, 7%. We went down 20% in a straight line. And it wasn't until the Fed made a massive pivot. We didn't break out last year until the Fed Fed corrected the yield curve and they lowered three that, times. That was at the end of yeah, December. Tim, Tim though, Gideon, got to move on. Okay. I mean, liquidity is a part of that. I just want to talk about uh, what Todd and Dan are talking about in terms of allocation and how retail investors are responding. And and look, um, if you live through 2008, you certainly probably act differently in the market. Doesn't mean you're acting emotionally, but but look, you have to sleep every night knowing you can sleep on a portfolio that you're comfortable with. If you're uncomfortable with your risk profile right now, um, then there's nothing wrong with taking a program sell of five or 10% of your assets and doing it across the board. What I would urge you not to do is pick the stocks that are down the least and sell those because those are probably for different reasons. Those are probably companies that are either best of breed or companies that maybe have actually been defensive because they have some uh, positive exposure to all of this. But 
But the key is you have to be able to act in, in a rational, yeah, come from a rational place right. and doing a program sell of raising a little cash at this level because you've gotten to a threshold of risk that you can no longer tolerate isn't the worst thing in the world. It's, it's definitely not Think about what Dan just said, though, when, jump out the when you're looking at what you, your parents and all of our parents. When you look at the numbers where the Dow was in the 1980s and you see these barbaric sell-offs right. that we've seen now, right. if you've stayed the course, you've made a ton of money. If you haven't, you got it. what happens with human nature and psychology is we always want to sell the bottoms. And we always want to sell. Fear. Right. The fear is sure. we want to sell tomorrow. And I don't think you should be a seller. Don't sell tomorrow. into this. Well, that's your, I, I, it, it depends on it depends on what you own. But you started off talking about triple Q's. I think that the average person to diversify what I do for my kids is I buy ETFs. I buy six ETFs that are globally represented. So I'm not reliant on the single stock. I'm reliant on the indices. Okay. Todd Gordon, thank you very much. Thank Sound you advice. Good out. stuff. Thank All you. right. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. So be sure to stay tuned for CNBC's special commercial-free coverage of coverage of the markets continuing, markets in turmoil, that, of course, tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We are, by the way, commercial-free here on Fast Money. Well, it is just past 5.30 p.m. Eastern time here at the NASDAQ. If you are just joining us, let's recap the major sell-off on Wall Street. The Dow having its worst point drop in history, falling 1,190 points. All three major averages are now in correction, off 10% or more from the recent highs. Let's get more with Bob Pisani at the NYSE. And Brian, this is a takedown of the entire global stock market. I just want to point that out. This is not about tech versus industrial or growth versus value or China exposure versus U.S. exposure. This is a takedown of the entire global stock market right now. And you can see this in the stock market today particularly in the Dow Industrials. So in the Dow, consumer names, for example, uh, you see Nike, you see McDonald's, you see Procter & Gamble, everything down 3 to 5%. We saw it with uh, industrials as well, though. It's really the same situation. You see United Technologies, you see Boeing down 4 or 5%. It doesn't matter what sector you're in. You could take a look at the banks, too, the Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. It's down uh, as well. Some tech names, for, uh, Apple, for example, uh, and Microsoft, down a little bit more. But remember, they were not down as much as the rest of the market going into trading today, so they're playing a little bit of catch-up. Everything, they're down 12-13% along with everybody else, so essentially it's all the same. Elsewhere, we've seen a, a big uh, ex- expansion of new lows, particularly on the transports. Just been terrible here. United, Delta, all of the, uh, the uh, transport, C.H. Robinson, United Parcel Service, FedEx, all the logistics companies devastated on this. I'll give you an idea of how crazy the trading has been. 
Uh, Southwest Airlines hit a 52-week high less than two weeks ago. It was $58. It hit a 52-week low today. 52-week high to a 52-week low in two weeks, down 20%. That gives you some sense of the volatility we're seeing. So everything is essentially 12 13% off of their highs. And I want to show you, it doesn't matter where you are, the whole global stock market. Hong Kong's down 12 Europe, that's the stock 600's down. Shanghai's down about 10%. Japan down 10%. U.S. now down 12%. The markets are saying this is truly a global phenomenon. Brian, back to you. Uh, Bob Pisani, thank you very much. It truly is. And by the way, folks, we will be taking you live to Hong Kong for an update on how their markets are going to be opening after our biggest point drop in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. All right, let's talk now more about what happened today and more importantly, what you need to be doing about it. Julian Emanuel is calling us in right now from BTIG, and he joins us now uh, by phone. Julian, thank you very much for calling in on this uh, historic day. Obviously, we did not get the bounce that many expected the last couple of days. We ended on our exact lows, which Dan and I were talking before the program, is not a good sign. What do you expect tomorrow? What do you expect next week? So I think the difference between today and, let's say, Monday when we were on uh, with you uh, in the evening is that you actually saw disorderly price action and fear in the market. Okay, that was, you know, very palpable the way the market traded intraday, certainly the last 20 minutes or so. To us, when you think about it, and we said this uh, and we continue to say this, is that as an investor, you have been rewarded uh, by being a buyer down 10 to 15 percent consistently throughout the cycle. Um, we do not yet see the conditions that would cause that to be any different. And when you have this kind of fear, we're not saying that today's the bottom. And obviously, if you look at it, futures close at a discount. So we're likely going to see more selling pressure uh, tomorrow, at least at the opening. This is the time to start carefully adding to positions. To what? Buying what? But by the way, Julian, if you're saying that we ended on our lows, which we did, futures ended on a gap, which which they did, which none of those things portends well for tomorrow. Fridays this year, as Michael Santoli has noted, have tended to be pretty the worst day of the week so far. People don't want to be long going into the weekend. Why start now? Why not well, wait a little bit, see how this shakes out? Because when when the volatility is this high, you know, 39 in the VIX, Timing the market is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's normally very, very difficult. Um, you know, for us, it basically, it's, it's you know, the, the difference, you know, think about it, right? You know, the 200-day moving average uh, was at, at 30, uh, 30.42, and that was, uh, you know, a support level that basically looked like it was going to hold until the last hour of the day. Um, and now we're thinking, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking that, you know, you can go substantially below 3,000. The point being that it, you need to step away and have a plan for a disciplined approach and, you know, put a little bit in, the market moves lower, you buy a little bit more, and, you know, really just to the point where you need to take emotion out of the equation by being disciplined. Hey, Julian, it's Tim. So, uh, you know, I tend to agree with that, and I think we're going to give a few stocks uh, throughout the course of the evening that we, we would do that with. But I'm curious, as you say, start to nibble back in. Do you take a sector approach? Do you take a, a holistic market approach? Uh, in other words, an indexed approach to a, a portfolio? Um, or, or do you actually find sectors that have been 
been most beaten uh, either due to the direct impact of the coronavirus in terms of their regional influence or their trade influence uh, or their transport influence. How, how do you leg back in? And, and do you, do you, again, can you pick a sector here or would you rather uh, just start to put the allocation across the entire portfolio? Sure. I think for a lot of people, there's a little bit of shock in terms of the moves of the last week or so. Um, you know, you want to try and quickly figure out where your own portfolio is, is overweight and underweight. Uh, basically, you know, from talking to clients, we think a lot of people are overweight tech. Uh, we think that is probably an area that isn't likely to bounce, given that it was had been the leader uh, prior. But what we would say is, you know, the first decision is to add to exposure. So if it's, if it's a pure index, that's fine. We happen to believe that healthcare, which has been very, very attractive on a relative basis, is something to take a look at. Uh, we, we like it. We think it'll outperform on the way back up. And financials, uh, I think part of the, the maybe unexpected part of the last few days is that the yield curve has actually been steepening. Um, that, to us, bodes well in a sector that really has been beaten down very extensively, um, and we see value there uh, from a valuation perspective as well. Julian, just to piggyback these questions, when you look at uh, the chemical names, which I talked about earlier, and energy names, are you getting pushback from your clients? Is it environmental and social concerns? What is troubling these names? Because if you look at a Dow that's down 24% year to date or a handful of other names, and obviously everyone knows energy has not performed well for five years, what is going on with these chemical names? Is there something bigger? Because when I look at the yields, you have these stocks that are yielding 7% in some cases. Is it, it's not just about value and growth. There's a bigger thing going on here, and have you spoken to your clientele about that? Sure, we definitely have. Obviously, you know, the push to ESG has certainly been a headwind uh, for those stocks and those sectors, but it's also part of the whole uh, passive investment move. If you think about it, right, as a portfolio manager benchmarking against the S&P 500, you are not overly punished by being underweight areas like materials and energy whose weighting in the index has dropped precipitously over the last several years as technology has increased. So basically the trade there has been sort of, you know, let's just continue to be underweight because it's not really going to hurt. From our point of view, and I think, you know, if, if the last, you know, sort of year to date has, has proven anything, is that you can have straight line moves. You certainly had one to the upside, and you're having one to the downside now, but those don't continue forever. And from our point of view, those material stocks, those energy stocks, are pricing in a recession that we just don't see as a base case in 2020. Hey, Julian, it's Dan. Um, Question on China. A lot of China bears have kind of just mentioned the fact, I guess, time and time again since uh, the U.S. financial crisis and then how it rolled into Europe, that, that obviously China has a massive debt issue. Does this issue with the quarantines and just basically the lockdown of a lot of business over there, does it raise the question that finally this bubble in China, this credit bubble, could burst? And if it did burst in some way that the government really couldn't contain, does it have the likelihood to kind of roll back to the Europe, roll back to the U.S.? And is that something that maybe maybe that's what U.S. Treasuries are kind of, uh, you know, so suppressed? Maybe that's the that's the thing. 
It's a very, very fair question. I think, you know, the, the China story becoming unraveled has probably been around for five or six years. We always wonder whether this is the moment. You know, it's hard to say it isn't based on what we know, but what we would say is you look at it, you know, there's $3 trillion uh, in terms of FX reserves. There are a lot of things that China can do to stimulate the economy. They may not necessarily work now because of the quarantine situation, but once that eases up, and that does seem to be the case, you know, the reported yeah. cases uh, have leveled off, is, is that there is enough uh, potential for stimulus that we don't think this is, you know, the bursting uh, of the situation yet. All right, Julian Emanuel, Julian Emanuel, BTIG, thank you very much, saying you might want to start buying on the way down. We're going to get to oil in a second. Tim Seymour, very quickly on that. To that sort of iron fist rather than the velvet glove approach to stimulus that China has, could China equities actually be a better place to be than U.S. stocks right now? You know, we have seen at different times, and, and again, we, we're, we're looking at all these relative allegories, but, uh, you know, EM always bottoms first. Um, and, in fact, they always fall first. And, in fact, EM had been falling aggressively into this move because, again, this was the epicenter of at least where the coronavirus originated. So, um, China has a lot of fiscal policy tools at, at, at their disposal. Um, Chinese equities, uh, and it's been interesting because actually after uh, Alibaba is an interesting example because it's, it's, a, it's a stock that's also a proxy play for EM, it's a proxy play for trade, it's a proxy play for China, um, but it's, a, it's an online retailer at its core. And, and Alibaba has actually been kind of defensive over the last couple of days. Um, but, you know, your question is, can, can Chinese or maybe... Chinese stocks or other places where the central banks have a lot of fiscal, uh, well, the government has fiscal, uh, the central banks have the ability to actually use policy. Um, the answer is we have seen this before. Uh, I do think that China is going to throw everything that they can at the problem. Uh, and I think that's actually a beneficiary for some of the regional uh, trade. But by the way, we have big trade data coming out of South Korea on March 1st. We have, South, we have Taiwanese, uh, Taiwan trade numbers coming out about four or five days later. And on March 16th, we have the whole slew of the China trade data that I think people are going to be front and center. I realize yeah. for folks, that seems like a long time away, but that's important stuff. Truly bizarre. The epicenter of this China, the FXI, the biggest China ETF, is up this month, one and a half percent, while our S&P yeah, 500 is that, down. That's the I mean, easiest thing for them to do. I mean, like just buy stocks directly. They can buy their banks. And, if, and the FXI yeah. is very, very bank heavy. Um, and, and, and by the way, the valuations in those banks are crazy cheap yeah. um, if you believe that the central bank is going to continue to support them. All right. Moving on. Today's Wall Street sell off pushing what else? Oil deeper into a bear market. Crude here and Brent crude overseas, both down more than 20 percent this year. We're at 47 and change in oil. Now, of course, energy stocks, this is a daily story, being hit more than any other. Every major oil stock is now either in a correction, if they're lucky, or a full-on bear market. Chevron and Exxon are down 13 and 15 percent this week. The big oil and gas ETF, the XOP, down 37 percent this year. Continental Resources lost 15 percent today. And names like Holly Frontier or Refiner down 10 percent. Marathon, Valero, Cimerex, One Oak all down. Lori, I know you're not an individual stock person, but how about this? Exxon now has a 7% dividend yield. Chevron, 5.5%. Is there any reason to own some oil and gas stocks, even if you hate the sector, you're an ESG investor, 
but you're looking for pure dividend yield. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the energy sector as a whole, but there are certain things that I do like about it. And one of the things I really love about it is the dividend yield and the shareholder friendliness of the sector. I mean, you know, one of the things we look at, a stat that absolutely blows my mind, is that the dividend yield on the energy sector has actually been higher than financials. Um, we know that a lot of investors who have been moving into equities in the last, you know, frankly, since the financial crisis, have been coming into this market to get yield. And that may not be the top priority at this particular moment while people are de-risking, but once we get out of this, I think that's going to be a huge theme for equities again, and I think it should benefit some of these names with huge yields. Now, again, I don't love the broader energy sector, and part of it is because of those ESG concerns. And frankly, you know, regardless of what you think of ESG, I know some of my clients hate it, some of it love it, but they are getting flows. It is a growing part of the asset management industry. And, you know, for better or worse, uh, those climate concerns regarding those stocks do matter. Yeah, they are. And, and Steve Grasso, I mean, listen, it's the, I called it the Cerberus. It's the three-headed dog. I mean, you've got, ES, you've got, first off, you've got Corona and global oversupply. You've got ESG, okay? And you've got a world where there's so much debt that if you just sold every oil and gas stock that has the highest net debt to earnings ratio, you, and sold it short, you'd probably right. be a nice very, very, you'd be a very rich person. So you, you, right said, now. you talked about yield, and, and ExxonMobil's uh, dividend yield is seven percent. The stock's down twenty nine percent year to date. So when you look at the EMP side of it, I think we're in an oversupplied world, and we're heading towards an un- under demanded world for the commodity sure. itself. So EOG is an EMP company; they're down twenty eight percent, and they're one of six with a. High credit rating. Right. And now you look at, th- these are where you should, in theory, be putting your money. Now you look at who benefits from a lower price in oil, and it's the refiners. Valero is a refiner. Valero's down 28%. So there's no place to put your money here. And if you look at crude, 42 to 43. On a chart is where it bottomed in 2016, 2017, 2018. So it must hold that level, 4250, 42.5, up to 43.5 for three years prior. The problem is it doesn't show any signs of having that ability to what Lori yeah. said with ESG investing. No, you would think these stocks cause cancer yeah. the way people are treating them. Well, you know, some people might say that they do. All right, listen, generally when oil stocks fall and oil prices fall, airlines do well. Not today. Airlines, because of coronavirus and travel worries, getting hit hard in today's sell-off. Let's get to Phil Abo with more on that side of the story. Phil. And, Brian, we have some fresh news for you. Just a few minutes ago, American Airlines out with its own travel waiver, now joining United and Delta in terms of saying if you have a trip that was booked for northern Italy, and we're talking about Milan, Bologna, Venice, well, they are going to waive it. So now you've got United through June 30th, and again, they're to Milan, Bologna, and Venice. You've got Delta through March 15th. That's all of Italy. Um, the big concern, Brian, we've talked about this for a couple of days, the big concern is that you see pockets of coronavirus potentially pop up in other areas around Europe, which would prompt other waivers because the airlines are realizing, look, they see it in real time in terms of whether or not there's going to be demand for someplace, either issuing waivers or 
potentially having to cut back on flights, which is what they've done with South Korea. Look, they canceled them altogether for China. That's the big concern, the transatlantic exposure. And remember, we're going into a period of time, the second quarter, when the airlines, the big three that we're talking about, Delta, American, and United, they all have a higher percentage of seats going across the Atlantic over to Europe. So you've got them now with 17 or 20 percent of their seats in the second quarter. That's the concern, and that's one reason added pressure on these guys today. Phil LeBeau, Phil, thank you very much. We go around the horn here, guys. The best-performing airline stock this month is down 13%. That's the best-performing major name, and that is United. You've got American Airlines Group down 23%, Hawaiian Holdings down 20%. One thing we know about the consumer, Dan, when things like this end... We tend to bounce back quickly. Are these oversold? Right. Well, so airlines are probably not going to get those sales back. But if you look at like a JetBlue that does not have that transatlantic exposure, then you say to yourself, the stock was at 22 after they reported earnings just a month ago. And now it's trading at 16 and a quarter and six and a half times. It literally bottomed today at the exact 52-week low. It's been trading, banging. That's the low of the last five years. So to me, that's one that I would expect to see come back quickly. I think consumers in the U.S. are more likely to start traveling again in the U.S. before they go overseas. So I would stick with a domestic guy like Jim. Delta Airlines, you know, look, I've talked about Delta a lot, and this would be one of those names, as we talked about names, that you really should be picking your spots on. First of all, Delta Airlines has created brand premium and relative value multiple premium to the rest of the sector. They've got financial stability, Uh, They've got a forward-thinking management team. They've actually been very interesting on on how they've actually hedged some of their their costs and obviously their jet fuel hedging. Uh, And they've been very prudent, I'd say, on capacity, but they've also shown that there's free cash flow here. So uh, 24% in five days. Five days, um, that's just extraordinary by any measure. And it's not to say uh, that you won't see a challenging number. But, the, you know, this is exactly, look, United uh, decided they were going to pull 2020 guy. Okay, you know, Delta may do the same. Bottom line is, this is a company that is trading for recession and sub-recession. And it's a name that I, I look, I liked very much going into this. We know at some point uh, this dynamic will end. And this is certainly the stock that I think we'll see a massive, massive pop. Why not? Begin to nibble on this one uh, when you know that the balance sheet is Delta there. Had, the Delta hit a, a level right around $45 that going back a couple of years has been support in the name. So if you look at these, I'm long spirit to the same theme that Dan was talking about. This is, has no European exposure. It had no max jet exposure. Uh, J, uh, JetBlue had no max jet exposure either. But Delta on a chart, when you go back a couple of years, and I encourage people to do this at home, When you look at these charts, you're finding support on these levels that are not just for the last year, they're for the last two to three years, and they bounce considerably off those levels if you know what level to look at. Lori, buy the transports? So, you know, I would say on the airlines specifically, this is one that probably just is a little bit too volatile for me in general. And frankly, there's other stuff even within industrials that's higher on my shopping list right like now. Like what? Uh, like the machinery stocks. I think you can... What is some... a machinery stock? I know you're not going to recommend individual names. I know. Can you give us a hint? What does it rhyme with? Companies. Yeah. Companies like... <laughs> that... Hmm, um, what do they not do? Dogs. How about this? What do they do? Not dogs, um, but hogs. No, Come on, cat tractor no. deer. Cat tractor. No. Those types but, of those types of names. Yeah, Sorry. things okay. that build big, big companies that build stuff around the world have a lot of China exposure. Um, get dirty things that could things you know, that our kids look like a Tonka. Exactly. Things our kids like to play with. There we go. Um, when they're four, anyway. Um, but look, I, I, to me, like I think that's just something where I have a little bit more faith in the cycle. You know, one of my big concerns, and I'll tell you honestly, I was out seeing clients over the past week, and this week I was talking to a lot of people 
people who are scared to get on a plane because of their own personal safety. Sure. And these are investors. And, you know, I have some questions personally about how long it's going to take for travel demand to recover, just based on what I've heard this week. Um, but if you believe, to, if yeah. you believe but, but, to Tim's point that the Chinese government is going to do everything in its mighty fiscal and monetary power to try to bounce their economy back, some of that could be buying a lot of industrial machinery, buying a lot of those types of heavy industry goods for the United States. Yeah, and, and look, I think, you know, we haven't talked about the 2020 election at all. We've talked about the virus. I think the, the, the election has been having some impact on what's been going on recently. And one of the things we know is that some of the progressive candidates do want to do things like infrastructure spending, um, which, you know, so I can sort of see reasons outside of this virus narrative why I might want to pick up other stuff that's just as cheap. All right. Thank you, Lori. Let's do another reset right now. It's 5.52 Eastern Time. We have been commercial-free here on Fast Money. And again, if you are just joining us for some reason and missed the market day, it was a day to remember. It truly was historic. The Dow falling more than it's ever fallen on a point basis, 1,190 points. All the major averages down more than 4%. The selling has been hard. It has been fast. It has been indiscriminate. And if you're out there believing that things will get worse before they get better, We've got a very simple way to protect your portfolio using options where you don't have to sell your stocks. Options play chief strategist Tony Zhang is over at the Plasma to break down this very simple trade that you can do at home. So, Brian, like you said, markets are down over 4% today after back-to-back 3% declines. Usually in this type of environment, I'm looking for potential long opportunities, but I actually think things can get much worse. So I want to lay out an options trade to show you how you can protect your portfolio going into this type of sell-off. So first, let's zoom out a little. Here I have a one-year chart of the S&P 500. What we saw here in the last week is we had a 10% decline right to the 200-day moving average. And I want to point out a few different technical levels. We had that breakout around 302, where now below that level. The 200-day moving average at 304, we're now below that level. These are all potential bearish opportunities here, even though typically I would be looking for long opportunities in this particular type of market. Now, if we look at a a, a 10-day chart, we've seen that this line here at 304 is where the markets enter correction territory. And today we close at about 299, so below that level. Even though intraday we got above it, I think this market can continue moving lower. Now, there's a lot of different metrics you can look at, whether volatility or momentum, that suggests that after these types of declines, you should be seeking long opportunities. But the one chart that I want to point you to is this particular chart, and that's a number of coronavirus cases outside of China. While the corona was con- contained within China, markets were fairly stable. But over the last four days, we've seen this chart go parabolic. And this acceleration is really what's causing this panic that's currently settling in this market. Now, this is a a, a source by John Hopkins. And this is published every single day. So it's a chart that I want to keep an eye out on. And until this chart starts to plateau, I think that market's going to continue moving lower. So the trade that I want to lay out here using options is using a put spread because options are extremely expensive to try to buy protection. So I'm going out to April and I'm looking to buy the $300 put, spending about $10.35, selling the 275 puts against that, collecting $4.15, net net paying about $6.20 for a $25 wide debit spread. So my risk-reward ratio on this particular trade is about 
three to one if the stock, if the markets move all the way down to 275. And the reason I'm selecting 275 is because that's when the markets enter bear market territory. If we exceed that level, then I think you need to look at other strategies to protect your portfolio beyond just an option strategy like this. Okay, but that is one. Tony Zhang, thank you. Dan, your take on that. Yeah, so he's talking about probabilities. He's talking about defining your risk. And I think that makes sense, especially after a move like this. I will say this, that Tony has been on the spot. He's been on the program over the last couple months or so, detailing just how cheap spy options have been as it was working higher. So now they're expensive. And if you use a tool like options to help protect individual names or a portfolio, it doesn't really matter where the price of options are trading. You have to do, and this is, I think, a theme of this show that makes you comfortable about what you own and how you can sleep at night. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Dan, thank you very much. All right. Because this has been a global sell-off, let's do something a little different here on Fast Money and go global because the Asian markets, they are about ready to open up for their Friday. Let's get your setup now. Emily Tan is live for us in Hong Kong. Good morning to you, Emily. And good evening to you, Brian. And we are bracing for losses here in Asia following that plunge on Wall Street. Global markets on edge as the number of coronavirus infections outside of China reported in one day, surpassing those inside the country for the first time. The WHO saying South Korea, Italy and Iran are at a decisive point globally now. There's 82,000 confirmed cases, more than 2,800 deaths. With the Dow now entering correction, it joins the likes of the Hang Seng Index here in Hong Kong. Japan's Nikkei and Korea's Cosby are just sitting on the fence, both down more than 9% from their 52-week highs. Today's expected losses should take it there into correction. Now, following the massive plunge on the Dow today, Nikkei futures are pointing south, off something like 4.5%. Australia will be the next market to open up at the top of the hour. Spy futures down 3%. One market already in action this Friday morning is New Zealand, a trading close to two hours now. And the NZX50 is a traded down something like a 2%. That's the latest here from Asia. Back to you. All right, Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Looks like it could be another nasty day there as well. So let's just do something now to wrap up the program, guys. And let's go around the horn and let's talk about real-world ideas. What do you expect from tomorrow, Tim? What's the setup? People are scared. They've lost a lot of money, at least on paper this week. What are you expecting from tomorrow, and, and what should we be doing? Well, I, f- I first want to mention Apple because it's arguably the most important stock in the market. It's a stock that a lot of people at home own. And, and if you look at the chart on that, and we'll talk about the fundamentals in a second, you know, 260 is a level. Uh, certainly looks like we're headed to. Uh, and then the next level below that, again, of, of some support is probably around 220. When this stock got to 22 times forward multiple because of services and all the other you know, exciting parts of their business that have allowed this re-rating, um, people were comfortable paying that. Uh, you're now looking at a stock that's about 17 times multiple. This is a name that I think has free cash flow, but look at relative value within the market. Uh, And again, I think S&P over triple Qs if you look at the charts. Yeah, I would just mention on Apple. I mean, this one to me, obviously, it massively outperformed every sort of um, expectation last year. It didn't grow earnings. Yeah. It didn't grow sales. It didn't grow iPhones, but the stock was up 85%. That one to me has room to the downside. I would just mention Microsoft, the stock that we mentioned before. I want to be in names that have these massive secular shifts, these massive tails. Microsoft is one, but I say to myself, four or five months ago, the stock was like stuck at 150. That's where I want it. Lori? 
So we're telling people to stick to their long-term strategy. And three of the things that we were buying coming into this are three of the things that we're still buying today. Small caps, you're at a historic valuation opportunity relative to large caps, and they actually hung out, hung in pretty well today. Okay, Steve Grasso. When you look at your stocks, they're easy enough to find. Everyone should know what the 200-day moving average is on the overall index and what there are, are is what it is on their in, uh, stocks in particular. So if you look at the overall market, 28.55, we mentioned that level in the S&P. Watch that level. That's a must-hold level uh, for the overall market and for individual names as well. Good stuff, guys. Really appreciate it. Commercial-free hour. By the way, ending on our, as you called it, our dead lows of the day. It could be another wild day tomorrow. Thank you very much for watching us here on Fast Money on CNBC. A very big and important Mad Money with Jim Cramer is going to begin right now. We'll see you tomorrow. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.